0: Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome to the Exploring Mormon Thought podcast. I'm Corey Osler. I'm joined by my dad, Blake Osler, and my brother, Jacob Osler. Today, we're continuing chapter three in the book. Last time, we talked about Joseph Smith and the lectures on faith and what that entailed in the Mormon view. And today, we're going to go over four Mormon thinkers. Uh, I believe each of them was either an apostle or a general authority of some sort. And while we explore each of these, we're just kind of going to go over their kind of attempt at a systematic theology based on they're kind of in the same boat that we are now. Whereas with Joseph Smith, he was the one getting the revelations and he wasn't necessarily making a theology. He was just kind of evolving his view as he went based on new things that he learned. And some ideas were pretty radical and some were less so, I guess. But each of these people that we're going to talk about had to go off of what Joseph Smith said, and make some choices in regards to whether or not they were going to stick more to the scriptures or kind of pontificate more in their own way. Anyway, my brother Jacob's going to take the middle two sections, and I'm going to talk about the first and the last one, just so you know. The first one is the Theology of Orson and Parley P. Pratt. And if you recall, or if you don't know, I guess, these were both... Well, they were both apostles, right? Or was it just Parley that was an apostle?
1: No, they were both apostles. Parley was senior to Orson.
0: That's right. So Parley was Orson Pratt's older brother. A lot of the theology part, though, came from Orson, but they both kind of shared their theologies. And they were one of the, at least according to my research, they were one of the most influential thinkers on early Mormon thought. And let's see, just for some reference, Parley lived until 1857, and Orson lived all the way until 1881 so he was in Utah. And in the chapter it talks about the problems that they faced. So they've had Joseph Smith's revelations and they also have where they came from and trying to kind of synthesize the two and make sense of what was going on. Some of the problems that they went over. Let me just read this real quick and then we'll talk about each thing here. So in the book says they attempted to reconcile Hebrew monotheism with Joseph Smith's later teaching that several beings may occupy the position of God. They also struggled with the view that God is a material being located in a particular and a finite space and time with the understanding that God is omnipresent and imminent in reality. They also tried to understand the earliest expression of God's glory as intelligence in the strong monistic sense with the later understanding of independently existing intelligences in a very strong pluralistic sense. And last, they attempted to reconcile the fact that God has not always been God, but that God is always the same and unchangeable being, like it says in the scriptures. Before we dive into their actual theology, do you have any insight, Dad, as to their background and the conundrum that they were in here? Or not conundrum, but just kind of their situation on what led to the beginnings of their actual theologies.
1: We have to put it into context and remember that When the Prats were writing, they didn't have any guidance, really, on how to put together Joseph Smith's revelations. They were among the first to think it through, and and so they're kind of taking a first stab at saying, this is what Joseph Smith had in mind. Now, they had the benefit of having had many conversations with Joseph Smith, but while Joseph was expounding his primary developments during the Nauvoo period, They were in England on missions most of that time, so we shouldn't think of them as intimately familiar with and aware of of all that Joseph Smith was teaching, but they had that kind of access to Joseph Smith at points in their lives. And you've got to remember, Parley had been kind of an itinerant preacher when he encountered the Book of Mormon. His younger brother Orson really hadn't been a preacher, but Orson joined the church shortly after Parley did, and they were both quickly recognized as very able, intelligent men. And we kind of lump them together as brothers, but when I look at their thought, clearly the more developed thought comes from Orson Pratt in his early writings in The Seer. And partly we get some idea of what he thinks, but that's not nearly as well developed as for Orson. And so if we think about partly P. Pratt's teachings, sometimes it's unfair to lump them together, but by and large, they had the same view of an overriding intelligence, which was the sum total of all intelligences. Orson is really the one who had the ongoing influence, and he had the ongoing discussion with Brigham Young, and the primary difference, I think, is that Orson wanted to be a monotheist in some sense. And he thought of perfection in terms of an absolute upper limit. And so he still wasn't thinking in terms fully of of a forever dynamic eternal progression. And of course, that brought him into some conflict with Brigham Young, who had a notion of perfection as always growing everlastingly for all eternity. They had a disagreement. And uh, I would say the irony is, is that while Brigham Young won the battle, Orson won the war as far as the heart and mind of the church goes. so maybe that's a a somewhat decent overview.
0: It is. All right, and I kind of wanted to go into just trying to understand mostly Orson Pratt's theology, which is the one I studied the most. It bears a striking resemblance, you say, in the book in some parts to process theology, but in some ways it diverges drastically back into classical theism as well. So the first thing that I want to talk about was they they start with the ideas from Joseph Smith. I just wanted to read this from the book real quick. This is their understanding of what makes up existence, I guess. It says, Each particle eternally existed prior to its organization, which was enabled to perceive in its own existence. Each had the power of self-motion. Each would be an intelligent living being itself. In this independent separate condition, it would be capable of being governed by laws adapted to the amount of knowledge and experience gained during its past experience. And so we see kind of with that, they're saying each particle eternally existed. So they got that from Joseph Smith and that whatever intelligence is has always existed. And they kind of throw into it that every single particle or whatever the smallest constituent of existence is had the power of self-motion, meaning it could act for itself. It was independent rather than dependent on God, let's say. And I looked up stuff on Orson Pratt and this philosophy that he apparently bought, I mean, it's kind of his own version of it, but it's called hylozoism. And according to Wikipedia, that's basically the philosophical point of view that all matter is, in some sense, alive. And that's sort of similar to process theology that we talked about earlier, but has kind of its own flavor. It's kind of I don't know. I don't know if you call that like a, a mystical view or.
1: I'd say that's kind of a misunderstanding. I would call it panpsychism, or the view of the properties of mind are inherent in matter. And so a hylozoism, where every bit of matter carries on life processes, is a misunderstanding. That probably comes from a person who was writing history and didn't understand philosophy. So perhaps. Yeah. Happens all the time. Especially in Mormonism, where we have historians writing all the time about matters they don't know much about.
0: The next stage of the development of their thought is each particle, as it gets organized into an aggregate, like, you know, we can say into some sort of living being that we would recognize, it enters kind of a new level of existence as an individual. And so all the particles don't act or feel on their own anymore, but they now kind of combine and they act and think as one individual.
1: That's precisely an aggregate in process thought are things like rocks and you know larger objects that really don't carry on life processes. But an organism, as recognized by Whitehead, is really what the Prats are talking about. When the intelligent particles are organized in various different ways, they then take on an emergent life. They don't use the term emergent, but they clearly mean emergent. That life emerges from the greater organization, and organization adds something more than the mere sum of the parts. So the organization gives us an organism over and above the mere sum of the parts, which is an important concept.
0: I have a quote from your book that I didn't understand. Before we get to that, I just need to read this part. Well, one of the main things that Orson Pratt published was called The First Great Cause. Was that right?
1: He had a book called The First Great Cause, actually.
0: In that, you say, in the book, it says that he basically flipped the idea of the first great cause on its head by saying that the intelligence inherent in each individual particle, like we just talked about, rather than God as pure actuality, is actually the first great cause, meaning the first mover of things and the the reason things. You know, if you recall from a couple times ago when we talked about Aquinas, We talked about God being the first great cause just because they're thinking something had to be the first cause of all these causes and effects that we see. But they're saying, actually, no, it's not God necessarily. It's these individual particles. And that's an interesting idea.
1: Yeah, I think it's a very interesting idea because, like creativity in process thought and the process itself of becoming in a synthesis of past to present, the Prats had a notion of these independent existences. And I, I can't prove it, but I suspect that Pratt was somewhat influenced by Gottfried Leibniz, who was another philosopher who talked of monads. And the monads are the, the most basic realities, so the monads are created by God for, for Leibniz. Still, for Pratt, we have these intelligent, and he doesn't really define the nature of intelligence, but they move for themselves in some sense without being moved by God. And so the ultimate reality is something that exists for eternity prior to God creating it, without God creating it to be what it is. And in some sense, it's not fully controllable by God.
0: And here's the quote that I have a question, just I don't understand exactly what you mean here. It says, Nevertheless, universalizing the intelligence of all particles taken as a sum and synthesis of God locates the first great cause within God's power. So that seems to negate what you just said about intelligence. So what, what do you mean by that it locates the great first cause within God's power?
1: It makes the sum total of the intelligences essentially the mind of God, so that God moves the intelligences by analogy as if though they are part of his body. And the summation that I would get is one that actually it was in a letter that I found that he wrote to Brigham Young. But he had a pamphlet called The Holy Spirit which he kind of summarized everything. I'm just going to read it because I think it summarizes everything very well. What he says is the infinite number of particles of the Holy Spirit moves universal nature as if by the will of one being. For in fact, though the particles are infinite, yet they all act by one will. So likewise, it is with the oneness of the will and other attributes that constitutes the oneness of the great universal spirit, which pervades all things. The particles wherein this one will resides are infinite in number, extending through all space. The one will that pervades them all is the same as the will that dwells in the Father and the Son, the most perfect unity in all the moral and intellectual attributes of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It matters not how distant some parts of the Holy Spirit may be from others, nor how far they may be from the persons of the Father and Son, yet they are imbued with the same will and never act in opposition. To each other's desires and this is the great secret of oneness so they're all subject to god in the sense that they all act as one and so god's will is essentially the will for the particles because they act as one he doesn't explain with philosophical precision does he mean a metaphysical oneness such that they must act with as one is it a voluntary oneness such that it's logically possible and metaphysically possible that they may not act as one but they just in fact do or is there some other reason that they act as one? He never really explains why the unity. But his notion is, is that all of the particles are subject to God's will because they constitute God's will and are always one with it. So that I think that's a pretty clear summary of, of how that is.
0: All right, then I have another quote here, and then I have a question about that, if I could do that real quick. This is from Orson Pratt. It says, I have argued that the unity, eternity, and the attributes such as the fullness of truth, light, love, and wisdom, and knowledge dwelling in countless numbers of tabernacles in numberless worlds, and that the oneness of these attributes is what is called in both ancient and modern revelations the one God, besides whom there is none other God, neither before him, neither shall there be after him. I have still argued that the plurality of God only had reference To the number of persons or tabernacles wherein this one God, or in other words, the fullness of these attributes, dwells. So it seems to me that, especially in that last sentence, is he saying that when Joseph Smith talked about a plurality of gods, I believe that this is what he actually meant. Is that what he's trying to say there, do you think?
1: He's actually responding to two things. One is he's rejecting Brigham Young's Adam God theory and his eternal plurality of grandfather, great grandfather, great great grandfather gods as if, though, they were not acting in a unity, and there isn't really, in a sense, one God. There are many. And he's rejecting that idea. He's also defending his idea that God is the ultimate reality. We take all of these influences, particles, intelligences together, and they constitute the one God. So there couldn't possibly be anything that's greater than that one God, because he's everything put together. And so it's not like there could be a greater God than this God. And at least for Orson Pratt, more importantly, all knowledge is possessed by this one God. And so there, there can't be—and Orson, I think, gets caught up here in a, in a logical mistake. I think what he wants to say is there can't be a more intelligent than God because all knowledge that is, God has. What he doesn't seem to address is that all knowledge that is may not be all knowledge that there could be. But he eventually does, with Brigham Young, take the position there's nothing more that could possibly be learned. God knows all things past, present, and future. And God is the absolute upper limit of knowledge and perfection. And this is the one God. And what he's trying to do, and you notice what he's citing there also is Isaiah 40. The one God beside whom there is no other God is a quotation of Isaiah 40 from the King James Version. And so he wants to reconcile this notion of a plurality of gods, of intelligences, with the biblical scriptures. He reads it as monotheism. And so he's dealing with a whole bunch of considerations all at once, trying to make sense of them in light of what Joseph Smith said and making it reflect also his understanding of the Bible so that ultimately he ends up with a mono—and I won't call it monotheistic, I'm going to call it a monism— It's monotheistic in the same sense that pantheism is monotheistic, because God is really all in all. But this is also why Orson Pratt has so much in common with panentheism. It's not that God is identical with physical universe, but it's that all the intelligence there is in the universe is included within God's knowledge and responds to God's will which is, uh, if you're looking at it, if you're defining it, it has to be a form of panentheism or the kind of philosophy of God that Whitehead later developed.
0: Let me just try to sum up what I understand, and then if you can correct me where I'm wrong. It seems like he draws almost directly from the lectures on faith, but he seems to believe that God is kind of like a status of deity, Like, that's a level beings can get to. So, like, God is a universal idea, and you give a good analogy, which I'll just kind of sum up. There's goodness, and that's a real thing, independent of anyone observing it. And then there's good people, which are individual manifestations of the goodness. And so he says, God is like the goodness in this analogy, not that he's goodness, I just use that as an analogy, and that perhaps the gods that are referred to are just instances of that godhood. And the way I'm understanding it is, like, basically there's a kind of being that is, like, you basically reach a level of God, and, you know, there could be tons of different people that have that status, but they're individual people, they're not necessarily the total of it. But then, in addition to that, he has this is where I you know, I think he got it from when they talked about the lectures on faith, and maybe he had input on that because it was, you know, made by a committee, but he talks about the Holy Spirit, or what we call the Holy Ghost, but the Holy Spirit here as kind of the mind of God, which I read as, like, he thinks of it as kind of like, if we think of it as a fluid that fills up every corner of the universe, every aspect of it, and In that way, it's all there. And even though individual gods are limited with their bodies, because of this field or whatever you want to call it of the Holy Spirit, this shared mind, that's how God acts imminently and acts everywhere. I'm just a little confused on the individual gods as opposed to this ever-present mind of God or the Great Spirit.
1: Yeah, I, I don't believe that Orson Pratt had a fully individuated sense of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is the shared mind of God that is shared by the Father and the Son. and I think you're right. It's likely he's influenced by the um, lectures on faith there. It's likely he had some input into the lectures on faith. It seems like he's drawing on that kind of an idea. You have to remember when he's writing, the lectures on faith are still in the Doctrine and Covenants. They're still part of the scriptures of the Church, essentially. And so... If you're trying to reconcile what we have in the scriptures, you've got to reconcile what we have in the lectures on faith, and that's a part of what he's dealing with.
0: We mentioned he had a big conflict with Brigham Young.
1: What happened was that when Orson returned from his mission to the British Isles, he heard from his wife that Joseph Smith was trying to seduce her into polygamy. There's a good deal of, of discussion that we could have. I basically think that his wife was not merely exaggerating, but just outright prevaricating. And I think Orson Pratt, over time, found that out. But still, he was dropped from the Quorum of the Twelve, and in essence, excommunicated for a while. And when he was reinstated, Brigham Young made sure he was reinstated to a junior position Otherwise, Orson Pratt would have been the second president of the church over Brigham Young, which I think is an important recognition. But it's probably a good thing because, as Dallin Oaks observed, instead of calling it BYU, it would have been OPU. <laughs> uh, so.
0: Yeah, and well, there you go. There's that. I guess I can see how he got there, but it's kind of confusing because it kind of starts with what we recognize now as like a process thought idea of the metaphysics of the universe, but then he still arrives at absolutisms. So... Like you said, yeah, like God has an upper limit of knowledge, meaning he knows all things, boom, that's the end. He can't know anymore, and he knows past, present, and future.
1: But I want to temper that somewhat. I've actually found this is in the Journal of Discourses, the third volume, Orson Pratt observed that there were metaphysical necessities that conditioned God's power. I'm just gonna quote him for a couple of sentences here. He says, There are some things that cannot be performed. The great God himself has not the power. To do that which would be naturally impossible or in opposition to the great necessary fundamental truths of nature, which cannot be otherwise than they are. So this tells me two things. One, God doesn't have power to create the laws of nature. They're necessary. They can't be different than they are. And God is subject to the laws of nature. So God can't act in opposition to them, which is a rather severe limitation on God's power compared to the classical notion of power or at least divine power. And so while Orson Pratt was saying that God had all knowledge, he was definitely not saying that he's omnipotent in classical sense. So he is very thoughtful about this. And again, what I want to say is that Orson Pratt really wanted to say that all knowledge that there is, God has. But he included in all knowledge that there is knowledge of the future as well. All
0: right. um, I'm just going to read what Brigham Young and I guess other people voted as false doctrine preached by Orson Pratt. And there's five of them here, and that kind of gives an idea. Also, just a side note, I read that Brigham Young said, you know, listening to Orson Pratt preach is wonderful. He's so good at it, it makes you feel great when you hear it. Problem is, he's always teaching false doctrine. So they had a big conflict there. And as you said, I think there were two great influencers.
1: Well, and, and let me make an observation. It was not uncommon. For the brethren, especially Brigham Young, to simply disagree with one another, they didn't have a show that they were in agreement on all things. There were times when Orson Hyde preached things, and Brigham Young would get up and say, that's just not true. And there was at least one occasion where Brigham Young got up in the afternoon conference and said, this morning you heard from Brigham Young, now you're going to hear from the prophet of God. And he disagreed with everything he said in the morning. So (laughs) they were much more fluid (laughs) in some senses.
0: Good to know. I guess you know there wasn't the communication there is today, so they'd have to worry about everything they said going around the world and being held to it later.
1: Well, you didn't have to have your talk translated into 212 languages. So you didn't have to have a copy that was word for word, exact what you were going to do. They were extemporizing, off the cuff. And sometimes they got ahead of themselves, and sometimes they were a little more candid than they wanted to be, and sometimes they were just thinking out loud. It's a wonderful period in church history as a result. There's this kind of of fresh surprise um, possible. If you read the Journal of Discourses, it's one of the great things about reading. And you've got to remember, they don't have microphones, so they're in the tabernacle, and they're essentially speaking in a very loud voice, booming, and they're preaching. And they're preachers, and they've heard preachers who are very good at projecting their voices, and so you get this kind of a, a pastoral sense of teaching the saints of the restoration. It's a wonderful thing.
0: Yeah, that would be cool to cool to see. <laughs> yeah,
1: it would be chaotic for us now.
0: <laughs> All right, so here's the five things that were denounced by Brigham Young and the others that Orson Pratt taught. These are the things that Orson Pratt taught, specifically not their comment on them. There will be no being or beings in existence that will know one particle more than we know. Then our knowledge and wisdom and power will be infinite and cannot from thenceforth be increased or expanded in the least degree. And that's in direct conflict with Brigham Young's where he said, you know, there's eternal progression and you'll always learn new things. or gods will always learn new things. There will be nothing more to be learned. That's like unto the first. The Father and the Son do not progress in knowledge. So a lot of his disagreements seem to be about God's knowledge and just progressing in that sense. Here's a quote, it says, And wisdom, because they already know all things past, present, and to come. Number four is none of the gods knows more than another, and none are progressing in knowledge, neither in the acquirement of any truth. And last, every particle of Holy Spirit, however minute and infinitesimal, possessed every intellectual or moral attribute possessed by the Father and the Son. I guess we didn't talk about that, but we don't really have time right now. But that's kind of a weird thing there. Anyway, let's move into John Woodstow now with Jacob.
1: I'm going to make just one correction. It's not Woodstow. It's Woodso. Woodso. So, yeah.
0: W-I-D-T-S-O-E. <laughs> All right. Well, you say it right then. I said it wrong. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so John A. Woodso is an apostle. He lived from 1872 to 1952, but what we're mainly going to be talking about is his book that he wrote in 1915 called Rational Theology. And at the time, this would have been considered progressive Mormon thought, mainly in that he's asserting that God and all persons progress to godhood by self-effort and mastery of eternal laws, and that knowledge of the divine is gained through reason, sense, experience, and revelation, spoken like a true scientist, which... John Witzel was. <laughs> Some interesting things that he brings up. He's got his own sort of definition of matter, that matter is, in its essence is eternal and is everlasting. And then he includes that matter includes all forms of energy, and energy is only a form of intelligence. So rather than matter and energy being the two fundamentals of the universe, it, it can be said that matter and intelligence are the two fundamentals. And matter has properties of intelligence manifested by its ability to conform to natural laws. Also, he asserts that God has not always been God, and that was problematic for the saints, particularly the First Presidency and and the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. We'll get into that later. He also brings up how there are some intelligences who approach God in the status of their development. And although they may eventually get to the state that God is now, he is also eternally progressing, and so he will be that much further ahead of them. And so, well everyone is progressing towards that godhood and continue going upwards, God will still always be above everyone because he's continually progressing. And uh, something else interesting, that God is supreme only to our finite understanding, and he's not necessarily the greatest actually existing being. Uh, that seems to open the door for uh, an infinite regression of gods, but we'll get more into that. If you'd like, Blake, go ahead and give us a, an overview of uh, some of the, the key points here in, in his rational thought.
1: Yeah, I think you've got it right. Witzel thinks of God as kind of a scientist who mastered the eternal laws of the universe. There were others before him, but he's not going to talk about those. In fact, he avoids talking about them. I'm going to read, this is from... Let me mention that you can find a copy of Rational Theology at archive.org. I have a 1950s edition showing how... Enduring it was, was published by Deseret Book as an official publication of the church. It was published for about 40 years by the church and had a great deal of influence. I'm going to read about God the Father on page 66, where he says, God the Father, the greatest personage concerned in our progression, is the supreme God. So he's asserting two things here. He's saying God is the supreme God. But then there's this kind of caveat. In our progression. <laughs> yeah, who, who's concerned with our progression? He is the father of spirits. He is the being of highest intelligence. Then he gives this caveat, with whom we deal, which is an interesting phrase because it's taken directly from Brigham Young's Adam God theory, where God is the God with whom we have to do, where he is quoting scripture himself to say that this is the God with whom we have to do. He says, and and I love this kind of language because it's so pregnant with conditions. (laughs) To our senses and understanding, he is as perfection, which is to say he's not really perfection. It's just as to our understanding. In his fullness, he cannot be fathomed by a human mind. It is indeed useless for a man to attempt to define in detail the great intelligent being of the universe. There might be others that could do that, but certainly we can't. God, the Father, the Supreme God, knows the equivalent of every phase of the great plan, which we are working out. So what he knows isn't the future, per se. He doesn't see the future. He knows his plan. He has had our experience or the equivalence and understands, therefore, the difficulties of our journey. What he's affirming there is that God was once a human being. His love for us is an understanding love. Our earth troubles, we may lay fully before him, knowing that he understands how human hearts are touched by the tribulations and the joys of life. God the Father, the supreme God of whom we have knowledge, again, the caveat, he's the supreme God, well, at least he's the one that we know about, okay? (laughs) is the greatest intelligence in the infinite universe, because he is infinite on all matters pertaining to us and transcends wholly our understanding in his wisdom and power. So what he's saying is, he may not be all things considered the greatest and infinite, but as far as our understanding goes, he is. We know no greater God than the omniscient, omnipotent Father. So he's not saying there isn't one, he's just saying this is the greatest one we know. And then he has this wonderful, this is on page 69. You'd never see this in a manual. (laughs) Sex Among the Gods is the title sex which is indispensable on this earth for the perpetuation of the human race is an eternal quality which has its equivalent everywhere it's almost like he anticipated the proclamation on the family in its in its assertions it meaning sex is indestructible which is an interesting statement
0: meaning are you talking you're talking about gender right gender gender yeah gender yeah. just a yeah, call
1: uh, yeah gender the relationship between men and women is eternal and must continue eternally In accordance with gospel philosophy, there are males and females in heaven. Since we have a father who is our God, we must also have a mother who possesses the attributes of Godhead. So the mother in heaven is a logical deduction from the fact that we have a literal father. And he's saying gender is eternal, and so we must have a literal mother as well and I'm quoting him again, this simply carries on onward the logic of things earthly and conforms with the doctrine that whatever is on this earth is simply a representation of spiritual conditions of deeper meaning than we can here fathom. And so what he's doing is developing a theolo- A rational theology is a thoroughly human theology. It's based upon our rationality as far as we can go. So he isn't purporting to tell us how things actually are. He's outlining, and this is imperative to understand, He's outlining what is available to us as human beings. It is a cognitively and epistemically more modest approach to theology. So he's not going to tell us what God actually thinks or how God actually is. He's just going to say, this is how it seems to us, which I think is is kind of the hallmark of a, a rational theology. He
2: dodges a lot of questions that would be very trying to, to some of the assertions he makes by saying, well, that's just not something that... Uh, we as humans can understand, for instance, God not always being God. Well, if he wasn't always God, that means there would have had to have been another God playing the role of God at that point, which in order to progress to a God like you talked about, it would have to go back infinitely. And how do you answer the question of, well, how did that first God, or was there ever a first God? He just says, well, this is a rational thought. This is something that he doesn't even explore.
1: Well, let, let me make an observation. Widtsoe, I believe, was fully aware of the problems that Orson Pratt had had in giving what I would call an all-things-considered theology. That is, it's not limited by the human perspective. It actually purports to state the truth beyond human knowledge and our cognitive capacities. You know, God's beyond us, and he's revealed things beyond us, and we can't fathom them, but he said that's the way it is, so that's the way it is. That's how Orson Pratt addressed it. For what he saw how Orson Pratt had had real problems with that approach, and so he is being more modest in his claims. And as a result, I think he believes that politically he's going to be able to negotiate those kind of problems because he doesn't purport to give some kind of ultimate assessment of truth.
2: I wanted to read a quote here about him talking about God's progression. He says, The Lord, who is part of the universe, is common with all other parts in the universe, is subject to eternal universal laws. In some manner mysterious to us, he recognized and utilized the laws of the universe of which he is the chief intelligence. Therefore, the law of progression must be accepted. God must have been engaged from the beginning and must now be engaged in progressive development as infinite as God is. He must have been less powerful in the past than he is today. Nothing in the universe is static or quiescent. It is logical to believe that progressive God has not always possessed his present absolute position.
1: So there was a time when God wasn't God. Mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, Penrose and Winder, who were the counselors in the First Presidency, when they read his manuscript, Joseph F. Smith was outside of Salt Lake at the time. And you've got to remember, you don't return to Salt Lake in an overnight flight. It takes a long time to get back to Salt Lake if you're outside of Salt Lake. And so Joseph F. Smith asked them to review the manuscript. Penrose said, I don't like to think of a time when there was no God. Well, Witsow is never asserting that there was a time when there's no God. What he actually asserting, if we... If we read about the council in heaven on pages 36 and 37, what he's really saying is that the ultimate authority isn't an individual human being. The ultimate authority is the great council. It's actually the council in heaven, and they're the ones. It was by obedience to the laws of the council in heaven that he became essentially a fully divine being, and because they trusted him, he was made a god by them. Let me just observe, there's this remarkable affinity, not only is God the Father a scientist who becomes God by self-effort and mastering the laws of the universe, the ultimate authority is like the organization of the church. It's a council, it's a council of twelve presidency first presidency acting together rather than just one individual. So by this time, the governance of the church is actually now re- reflected in Witzel's idea of how things actually are in heaven, which I think is fascinating.
2: In Witzow's view, do you think him viewing this council, did he see, if we use an example of the organization of the church, is God the, the president of the church? Is he the head of this council? Or since he was talking about you know, God not always being God, leaving room to say, you no, know, there was another God that's possibly higher than him, would God more be in the Quorum of the Twelve? Or, or where do you think he views him in this council?
1: The council is actually the formulator of the plan by which beings become gods. The natural laws can't be other than there, so they don't create the natural laws, but they're, they're kind of the ones that set up the school by which other gods can progress to become gods. And so the council is more ultimate than the Father. And what's interesting is he's kind of violating the rule. He said, you know, we've got this supreme being. It's God the Father. And in fact, you know, just reading about the Council of Gods, he says, God the Father of these spirits saw that they were ready for further light and came among them to discuss their future. As the supreme being, God has in mind a plan, the great plan. So, God is the one who's putting together, he's talking about the council of the gods that is put together by the Father to come up with the plan. But the plan is, in essence, how to become a God. (laughs) And so, God the Father is assisting us to become a God. There was a council before the Father, which he leaves kind of unnamed. He becomes a God in the same way that we become gods. And so, what he's doing is by implication asserting that there's a council in heaven to which he's subject, which came up with its own plan for him to become God.
2: And so probably part of this council, would you think that some of the intelligences who he describes who approach God in status of their development, do you think they would more be part of the council? or?
1: Yeah, he talks about, of course, he reflects the temple ceremony, talking about the father, son, and Michael as the creators, and the chief intelligences, Carrying out the plan. And so, for instance, he begins the discussion in chapter 10 on making the earth, and he talks about the builders on page 50. He says this Three great intelligent beings were in supreme authority in the building of the earth, namely God, the Father, His Son Jehovah, who became the Christ, and Michael, who became the first man Adam. These three beings were naturally the ones concerned in the making of an earth for the sojourn of the spirits, for it was through the agency of God the Father, the spirit beings were started on the road of eternal progression. It was about the mission of Jehovah, the Son of God, that the differences of opinion raged in the great council. And finally, it was Adam or Michael who was appointed to be the one to come upon the earth and there to subject himself to death so that the procreation of spirits in earthly tabernacles might be begun. We still have, and I'm just going to wildly speculate that Witzel is also trying to make some sense of... Adam God. Exactly. Brigham Young's teachings. Yeah, it sounds like an echo
2: of Adam God going on
1: there. (laughs) But the, the echo is already in the Temple Endowment in some sense that he's also reflecting. So what he's doing is working with this because the people that he's writing to in 1915, many, many of them are still going to have a memory of what Brigham Young taught.
2: Uh, Another point I wanted to bring up that uh, seems interesting, and I don't know if he was the first one to hold this view or if it was controversial or not, but it's about God needing humans and humans needing God. He says, God standing alone cannot conceivably possess the joy that may come to him if hosts of other advancing and increasing workers labor in harmony with him. Therefore, because of his love for his children and his desire to continue in the way of greatest joy, he has proceeded to aid others in their onward progress. In that manner, through the united effort of all, the whole race of progressive beings receives an added onward impetus. True, the need God has of us is relatively small, and the help he gives us is infinitely large, yet the relation exists for the comfort and assurance of man.
1: Let me make an observation. I have no reason to believe that Witso was aware of how much he differed from classical theology. I see no awareness of classical theology in his writings, and I'm I'm sure he didn't understand he was differing 180 degrees from Thomas Aquinas, you know, a God that needs nothing outside of himself. So I'm not sure he knows just how really both radical and insightful what he's saying is, but he's just reflecting this kind of common sense that God must have had a reason for doing what he did, and the reason is that he loves us and wants us to progress, and he needs us. In some sense, our happiness is his happiness. And he has greater joy, and so our joy is uh, his joy. It becomes this kind of a model where earthly parents who truly love their children and are truly affected by them become the model for God, which I think is a pretty good way to go in theology.
2: I agree with you there.
1: Now, you did mention that Joseph F. Smith wanted
2: to make sure some issues were ironed out before this was published. I understand that he halted publication and Penrose and Lund read it. They disagreed on the evolution of God that Witzo put forth. And also, uh, like you quoted, Lund says that, I do not like to think of a time where there was no God. And you said that they misunderstood what Witzo was saying, but how long was the publication halted for, and how did that overcome the obstacles and eventually get published by Deseret Book?
1: Yeah, I've looked for a way to answer your questions. I'm not sure how long or if it was even halted. And the reason I'm somewhat hesitant is that while Joseph F. Smith asked it to be halted. There's no evidence that it was. And the statements that we have in Irrational Theology that were objectionable are still included Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the final product. So, for instance, one of the things they disagreed with was intelligences and whether or not they'd always been conscious. Uh, At the beginning of Chapter 7 on page 30, he says, Consciousness and the Universe is the title. Intelligent spiritual beings have been conscious from the beginning of the world in which they found themselves. They must have been susceptible from the first to pleasure and pain, must have had equivalents of our senses, which possibly were keener than those that we now possess. When they were placed in opposition to any law of nature, pain or its equivalent undoubtedly resulted exactly as today. When they conform to the law, satisfaction must have been sensed as today. So, we have these objections being expressed. We can see them in the diaries and in the writings of the apostles who were asked to review what was going on. What I don't see is any indication that there were changes in the manuscript, or if there were changes, they're very subtle, and he's still making the same assertions, and it's still getting away, essentially, with what they objected to. Delightfully, I may add, but that's... <laughs> <laughs> so, we really don't know how it
2: passed and went through, but somehow it came out in and- a we're still able to get exactly what he wanted to say
1: yeah i think that he didn't change anything about what he actually believed he put in a few cautionary statements that were just a bit if you look why man is man it is evident from what has been said that man subject to eternal laws in the far off beginning must have exercised his will towards the present state of manhood and so i think what he does is puts it in a more speculative voice but it's still a speculation that they're objecting to, <laughs> <laughs> right?
2: Yeah. All right, that's all I have that I wanted to bring up with. So, do you have anything you want to to add before I move on to B. H. Roberts?
1: Well, let me make an observation about So I think he's incredibly insightful. He has, again, like Pratt, this universe of intelligences and eternal matter. He is a scientist, and so he's aware of the laws of conservation of energy, which he relies upon to assert the eternality of matter. And he reflects a knowledge of of science as it existed in his day. And it's obvious he was an intelligent man. And he writes in a very straightforward, clear manner. This is about as clear a folksy statement of uh, progressive theology as you're going to see in your life. But I think it's ingenious. In some ways, this also has a lot in common with process thought. But I see no evidence that Witzow ever studied anything having to do with theology. I'll make another observation. He really doesn't quote the scriptures much. He just makes these kind of observations. He has these statements. He asserts them as a scientist. But when it comes to scripture, it's clear he's not a scriptorian. Mm. All right. Moving on to Brigham H. Roberts, better
2: known as B.H. Roberts. He was born in 1857, lived until 1933. He was the president of the First Council of the Seventy, and his finest work in the defense of the Mormon faith was actually when he was writing in a debate to a Catholic reverend. Uh, it's, it's von der Donct, who probably said that wrong, uh, but it's called Mormon Doctrine of Deity. And he brings up a lot of interesting things here that we can go over. First off, he asserts that Jesus of Nazareth was very God, and in fact, the revelation of what God is actually like. And the classical theism runs into the the problem a lot of, well, this is the way God is. And you say, well, if Jesus was really divine, how is God divine? And it's completely different from what Jesus is. Peter Roberts says, no, you want to see what God's like? Take a look at Jesus because he's fully divine and so is God. He also accepts that certain realities exist independently of God's creative power. When he defines intelligences, he breaks them up into two groups, one being the individual and actually existing essences of all persons. These have never been created, they've existed through all eternity, and individuality is backwardly eternal as well. That means from all eternity they possess capacities of logical reasoning, perception of a priori principles, imagination, rationalization, and self-directed volition. God and Christ are higher than everyone else, but God is more intelligent than all of the intelligences put together, and that's him interpreting in Abraham chapter 3. That's the first type. Uh, Second type is universal property of intelligence, which is all the intelligences possessing and which God incorporates into his very being through his indwelling presence in all things. Could you go into that a little bit more about his definition of intelligences and how to better understand that?
1: In his 70s course in theology, which also is available at archive.org, by the way, we get this wonderful statement about The nature again of intelligences and eternal matter, and how they're beyond God's creative power. We get statements by B.H. Roberts recognizing that God is limited in both power and knowledge. God doesn't know the future. God's power doesn't extend to creating the laws of the universe. God is subject to the laws of the universe. And so we have this really remarkable take on Mormon theology that is so, in essence, permeated by the notion of a spirit that is in and through all things that vivifies and gives intelligence to. So there's this co-intelligence. And what Roberts was doing was really defining how God acts through his intelligence and his spirit and how the spirit constitutes God's power and knowledge. You know, obviously, I'm not going to do it justice in just a a few-minute overview, Mm -hmm. But it is truly a remarkable work and more deserving. I'll I'll make this observation as well. I think this is uh, very important. And that is that the 70s course in theology was a five-year course used by the 70s of the Church in priesthood meetings. They studied it like we now study the teachings of the prophets. And so you had this very learned and erudite discussion by the top mind in the church at the time that was being used as a manual in priesthood. And it must have been wonderful being able to discuss these things in priesthood. That's all I can say. Yeah, wouldn't um, that be
2: a treat today?
1: <laughs> yeah, I I don't want to diss the people who put it together or the prophets, but there's really no comparison. There just, there just isn't. We've lost a lot. And I'll, I'll read, this is uh, from page 193. The fifth year of the teachings on the 70s, is the heading is number six, a plurality of divine intelligences. He says, we've already shown that the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are three separate and distinct persons, and so far as personality is concerned, they are three gods. Their oneness consists in being possessed of the same mind. They are one, two, in wisdom, in knowledge, in will, and purpose. But as individuals, they are three, each separate and distinct from the other, and three is plural. Now, that is a long way on the road towards proving the plurality of God's. But in addition to this, I would like to know from our friends, the critical sectarian ministers who complain of this part of our faith, the meaning of the following expressions. Then he goes through a whole bunch of scriptures. And the thing is, is B.H. Roberts was familiar with a number of philosophers whom he quotes throughout. He's familiar with the writings of great preachers and uh, Christian theologians in, in Christian history not the greatest. I mean, he'll never, he, he doesn't really quote Aquinas and The Best, but at least those writing in the Protestant tradition he's familiar with. And he gives a really wonderful overview in kind of dialogue with all of that to teach the saints about all of it and to place their faith in relation to that kind of, of teaching and to show the superiority of Mormon beliefs. So that's what he was doing. Now, when it comes to
2: eminence, he has a An interesting way he looks at it. He says it's the presence accompanied by power. And then he goes to show God's presence and power in four different modes. Um, one being God is present in the world as a creative power, evidenced by order and organization. The second, God is present as a sustaining power, the light in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which things are governed. The third, God is imminently present as the vital or life giving force in all living things. And the fourth being, God is present as the indwelling, intelligent, inspiring power of all things. Uh, that's physical and spiritual light. And he goes on to pretty much say that eminence is the source of all divine power. And that's, God's eminence is basically his omniscience. And uh, just to quote here, he says, God's presence and power penetrates. And pervades nature in the universe. In another view, nature is received into the all-including spiritual presence of God.
1: Yeah, here we see B.H. Roberts becoming a panentheist or process theologian because the world is included within God, and the sum total of the experiences of the world become the basis for God's knowledge. And God is influencing everything all at once through the presence of his light, his spirit, his intelligence. And so God is both acting upon and being acted upon in the greatest manner possible and to the greatest extent possible by all things. And so PH Roberts really is, in essence, giving us a view that must be term process thought, but I'm not sure he would have recognized it as such in his own writing. But he's very insightful. He doesn't hesitate to recognize the kind of limitations that are imposed upon God by the kind of assumptions that he accepts. And what he's really doing with all of this is making sense of DNC 88. DNC 88 and 93 seem to be kind of the touchstone. His view being that God's power is limited only by tasks
2: that are logically impossible.
1: He says that, but that's not what he means. God is saying you can't have a valley without two mountains because that, you know, that's what a valley means. Mm-hmm. But God can't create law and he can't change the law either. So God is limited by natural law in the sense that would clearly be logically possible to be different. And so what he says and what he gives us are two different things.
2: Interesting. He was understanding himself as thinking that only things that are logically impossible are the limitations on God. But in reality, like you said, logically, we can conceive of things that could be different, but they can't be broken because they're natural laws.
1: Roberts, I don't think, is aware of the distinction between logical possibility, metaphysical possibility, natural possibility, and pragmatic possibility. He, you know, these are just distinctions that would be beyond him because they're not really discussed in the literature that, that he's familiar with. He actually makes these kind of distinctions when he discusses God's power. And so while he's not aware of the distinctions, he's still making them.
2: Uh, he also brings up that God is still growing even in his mastery of the eternal laws and governing the physical universe. Do you think that implies that since he is progressing, was there a time where he was not a master of all in the universe, and carrying that all the way backward to is he also asserting there was a time God was not God?
1: He doesn't assert that, and I'm not sure that he would assert that. He kind of avoided the question, actually. I think what he is asserting is that it is the very nature of God to always be progressing. And the fact that God is progressing makes him no less divine. This is an important recognition. There may be an infinite number of realms that God is mastering, but if there's an infinite number by its very nature, it's something that can't be fully conquered by taking it one at a time and mastering these various areas of the universe.
2: So he's always been all powerful. All that exists, he knows, but he's still growing
1: because of all the different qualities. I don't want to assert that's Robert's position. He never expressly addresses the issue that I'm aware of. Okay. He does say, obviously, that the Father was once a man just as Jesus was. But he doesn't say that they progressed from a status of non-divinity to divinity.
2: Okay, he avoided the question. Good. Um, that's all that I had going over uh, the section on B.H. Roberts. Is there anything else you wanted to add before I move on to the next section?
1: No. Um, I. I mean... What I'd really like to do is have everybody read the 70s course on theology and the Vanderdank debate so that they could become fully aware and fully conversant so that we could discuss it. It's very worthy even today. I will point out that B.H. Roberts recognized how important his debate with Vanderdank was because in the 70s course on theology, which came much later, he quotes himself liberally from the Vanderdank debate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, uh... That concludes uh, the discussion about B.H. Roberts. We'll go ahead and shoot back over to Cole.
0: East Mormonism. So I kind of cut out and said, so we're doing neo-absolutist Mormonisms." B.H. Roberts was kind of the last person to try to make a big systematic theology until we get to kind of our well, I don't know if this is exactly the current state, but a large trend that kind of took place throughout 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, part of the 90s that it hasn't gone away. And we call it neo-absolutist Mormonism in this section, but the main thinkers here or influencers are Joseph Fielding Smith and Bruce Hart McConkie, his son-in-law. But just for some context, at least the way I understand it, so over time Mormonism has tried to enter more of the mainstream. Rather than draw the stark differences that we actually have from fundamentalists and evangelicals, there's been kind of a homogenization, if you will, and trying to drift in with them. And I think in doing that, we have sacrificed kind of the originality or the unique thoughts that were uniquely Mormon over time. And a lot of people might not even be aware of some of the differences. And one of those that has snuck in is back to this idea of absolutism. And that's why we call it neo-absolutism. One part I'm not exactly understanding, if you could go into this more, is like, what parts of Orson Pratt have been influenced here. Because you, you mentioned earlier when we talked about Orson Pratt that it's kind of funny that though Brigham Young won and he got lots of Orson Pratt's doctrines denounced, ultimately Orson Pratt's ideas won out in that over time, you know, since how often do we hear about Adam God anymore? No, that's completely denounced false doctrine. That's what the current position is. Whereas absolutist ideas of God have actually crept in, if you will, Why do you think Joseph Fielding Smith kind of swayed this direction? What was his influence?
1: I think he was simply a scriptural fundamentalist, and he was very influenced by fundamentalist Protestantism and a literalist reading of scripture. I don't think that he had any training at all in theology or awareness of historical theology or theologians had no basis in philosophy, and basically, I think he was ignorant of the sciences and the basic kinds of influences that had become dominant in the academy. And so they're crafting a view that is more responsive to fundamentalist types of Protestantism than to the more progressive and liberal types of Christianity that were
0: developing. All right, and then also to keep in context... At this time, all of Christian religion, it seemed like, kind of was separating itself from this. Because like, when the new scientific theories were developing, a lot of scientists, it seems like the general idea was like, oh, this is interesting, this is how God did it. But over time, there was kind of a more stark line drawn. It was like, well, there's science, and then there's religion, and they teach completely different things now, and we can't embrace them. One big example that I know Joseph Fielding Smith directly went against was the theory of evolution. And no, as LDS, there's not an official position on that per se. Joseph Fielding Smith, rather than being open about it, saying, you know, we don't really know how God did it, he pretty much shut it down. like, nope, that is philosophy of man, the way I understand it.
1: Yeah, I don't want to be tough on him. I mean, negotiating modernism and the influence of science and reorienting our view of who we are. So, for instance, Joseph Fielding Smith had kind of a, it's not really a logical deduction, it's more of an aphorism. You need Adam because if there's no fall, there's no need for a savior. If there's no need for a savior, then Christianity is false. And so he saw the traditional notions of Adam and a fall and death being no more than 7,000 years on the earth no more than 6,000 in his view, being really essential, the essence of Christianity. And so he's defending the faith as far as he understands it to be essential. I don't want to be glib about these issues. They're more difficult issues than at first they appear. What do we do with Adam in Mormon thought? I mean, he was in America. He walked around uh, Adam on Dayaman. And yet, given the evolution of hominids, The notion that humans first appeared in America is pretty radical. It's just false. The oldest fossils of humans are in Africa. And what do we do with Adam? Do we want him to be figurative in every respect so that there really was no Adam? It's hard to make sense of Joseph Smith's revelations if that's the case. And so these are difficult issues. I don't want to oversimplify them, and I don't want to trivialize the task that still remains to make sense of the scriptures in light of the theory of evolution and what we know about biological life on the earth. And so while the approach that Joseph Fielding Smith took is not one that I think can be taken seriously, I think I can understand why he struggled with it. All
0: right. And yeah, like I said, that was Christian religion's general struggle. Mormons aren't alone here. But like you said, I think the main impetus is lit- like scriptural literalism, where you read the scriptures and like, well, it says this, so it has to be like this because that's what the scriptures say.
1: Well, we're alone in one respect. There is this incredibly historical view of Adam having actually been in Missouri and having had a council and being the first father, having carried on certain activities in, in locations that are identified. We have this kind of literalism built into the revelations of Joseph Smith.
0: I guess that's true. Yeah. Yeah. This is a short section in your books. I don't want to spend too much time here either. Exactly. But I just I'm trying to understand how this came about. For example, there's Joseph Fielding Smith and there's Bruce Armakonki, his son-in-law, and Bruce Armakonki. You got to be careful here too, because I know a lot of current Mormons that still love Bruce Armakonki. I remember on my mission reading Mormon Doctrine, I was like, yeah, this is awesome, because like this is the way it is, boom. But in further study, I've been like, oh, wow, this is, I don't know where he was getting this from other than his own mind. (laughs) I mean, not that you can say that about other people as well, but, you know, when it might have been safer to say, you know, we don't actually know all that's revealed on that, he decided to take a crack at it and declare it as whatever his opinion was as literally Mormon doctrine, and he literally wrote the book on that.
1: Yeah, I believe he thought he was carrying on Joseph Fielding Smith's kind of legacy. Remember, Joseph Fielding Smith wrote answers to gospel questions, multi-volumes. And so it was kind of like, I'm the answer man, I have all the answers, and if you ask me a question, I'm the scholar in the church who can answer all these things. And it seems to me that Bruce McConkie had kind of the same view of himself, I'm the answer man. And so I just think that Bruce McConkie believed he was carrying on a legacy to a man that he loved.
0: All right. I think a lot of the problems that a lot of current people that are, you know, with the dawn of the internet, people are learning more about what, let's say, for example, which we haven't really talked about, but the Adam-God theory, Bruce R. Conkey was one of the people that tried to kind of skew that, and he said it was basically a deadly heresy to believe that, and that you wouldn't be able to get into heaven if you believe that, but it was kind of confusing, because Brigham Young actually said that it was essential to salvation. If you didn't believe it, you wouldn't get into heaven either. And so there's just all this absoluting absolutist statements on what actual doctrine is, and I don't know, it can get a little confusing for the average person.
1: I actually like your verb absoluting because that's what they were doing.
0: I made it up, but I I thought <laughs> yeah, of that. yeah, no, it's
1: <laughs> it, you know it's a good coin verb. Anyway, I'm just going to make an observation. There there are what I call just theological head shakers like the assertion of bruce mcconkey that god was once in time but he progressed to become outside of time so he's now timeless so god went from a position of being in time where there's a before during and after to a time when there's no before but the very problem is the very notion that god progresses to that status includes in it that god is in time <laughs> you know i look at that kind of thing and just think did he not think about these things at all and i My view is that he he was saying what he felt constrained to say, what had to be the case, and, you know, if we can't understand it, you know, that's our problem, because that's the way that it is.
0: (laughs) All right, one aspect of actual doctrine I guess I'd like to talk about, says McConkie also maintained that intelligences are not eternal, rather there is a single intelligence, and all intelligences are manifestations of this one intelligence. Kind of explain that idea, and maybe where he kind of got that from.
1: Yeah, I think he's reflecting something that is present in Orson Pratt's teachings, that you have this one God who is both the culmination of all intelligences and the source of intelligence in all intelligences. You don't have plural intelligences to begin with. You have God, the one God, and then the intelligences are individuated at the time, if you will, of spirit birth, and they become spirits. And so he's using the notion of intelligence from D&C 93, which is singular, not plural. And it's this notion of intelligence. By the way, Charles Penrose had a very similar notion of intelligence. He was a counselor in the First Presidency during the time of John Whitsow. And so this is not a foreign idea in Mormonism. It's It's been a somewhat common idea. And it goes back kind of to the Prats as a way of understanding Joseph Smith. It's a competing interpretation a competing hermeneutic of Joseph Smith's scriptures.
0: All right. If you will, just say anything else you want to say about our neo-absolutism, how much influence you think that currently has, and what that means for us.
1: Well, I, I think your observation that it has dwindled somewhat in is prevalence and how commonly it is accepted. I'd like to believe that my writings have had some influence in kind of saying there's a different way of thinking about these things that makes better sense of our scriptures and is at least somewhat coherent. (laughs) And this view is not coherent and really doesn't make very good sense of all of our, not only all of our scriptures, but the statements of Joseph Smith. I think Mormons are a lot less committal on whether God knows the future. I'd like to believe, again, that has something to do with the arguments that I've made and, and the influence of pointing out that Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, all clearly believe that God was not complete in knowledge and was progressing to show that this is a live option in Mormon thought and ought not get dogmatic about it, and that there are other reasons for preferring the view that God is progressing in some respects in knowledge and does not know the future as it unfolds. He learns about it. And so I agree with you. I think it, it's less prevalent today than it was from about the 60s, maybe the 50s, to the early 90s. I think with... The publications that recognize and bring back the historical awareness of the competing view and the notion that Orson Pratt had all of these propositions, which have been declared false doctrine by the First Presidency, would suggest that it's not merely a competing view, but that actually those who are acting contrary to the accepted faith are those who assert that God has complete knowledge.
0: How about you, Jacob? Do you have any thoughts on this neo-absolutist section?
2: Well, just... Something I think is interesting to note is I mean we see these these publications things like Mormon Doctrine and the Answers to Gospel Questions and the the thought is that pretty much uh, that you know the first presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve that's where all of their thinking was going. Um, but uh, in books like one one in particular that I've read, David O. McKay in the Rise of Modern Mormonism, we get an inside view. Is it wasn't quite that simple. There were a lot of competing views. Not just on the the issues we've mentioned, but uh, things such as blacks and the priesthood, yeah. and the list goes on. And it, it's interesting to see whose ideas have come out in the end and are more prevalent. Well, at least were more prevalent up until you know the mid '90s, or when the the internet became more widespread to disseminate knowledge to more people in a, in an easier manner. But uh, it, getting the inside look, there's yeah. That's what it looks like where all the thought was going, but there actually was, even among the the Quorum of the Twelve and the First Presidency, a lot of disagreement on some of these things that were being published.
1: Yeah, and I think that the Church obviously doesn't like to err in public the various points of view. It's clear that there are such different points of view, but they would like to project to the public a unified front. Mm-hmm. and. Really what this shows, I think, is that there's a good deal of both pragmatic disagreement on how the church should move forward in pragmatic matters, but also theologically, there are different views. And I think it's somewhat liberating because what it means is, oh, I have options here, and I can accept the view that I deem to be the most reasonable or the most explanatory or the one that works best for me. And I think that's very healthy. I think that is uh, far more healthy than having somebody say, this is the way it is, might not like it. That's the way it is. And uh, that's the gospel truth. I'm going to get, tell you just a bit of an aside. I had Joseph Fielding McConkie, Bruce McConkie's son as a religion teacher. In fact, he wrote a, uh, co-authored a book with my brother Craig. He, he passed away recently. You're probably not aware of that. And my brother had a great deal of respect for him and liked him a great deal. And I worked with a number of McConkeys at Kurt McConkey, a law firm. And, and at first I was really off put by their arrogance and self centeredness. But after I got to know them, I learned to love them and appreciate them. That said, I there was a particular exchange one day in, in religion class that I had the New Testament from him and. Joseph Hildy McConkie took virtually the entire hour to denounce the philosophies of man and how they had distorted scriptures, and he knew I was the only philosophy major on campus at the time. At the end of his discussion, he denounced the philosophies of man, and then he said, So, Brother Osler, I know you really love philosophy. What do you think about that? <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, Well, Brother McConkie, I think that's an interesting philosophy. <laughs> He was a bit taken back by that, you can imagine, (laughs)
2: because
1: what I really want to do and what I want to say is, you know, nobody has some kind of special secret knowledge. Authority doesn't establish truth, per se. There are reasons to listen to those authoritative figures, but the fact that one is a general authority does not make one an expert on doctrine or history or anything like that. We have all these unreasonable expectations of these good men and the women who lead the church that somehow by being a general authority, they have all the answers and they receive revelation on every issue. And, you know, they're always right. That's just not Mormonism. It's just not the way that it is. And I think we save ourselves a lot of grief if we acknowledge they're learning just like we are and they may be surprised by issues that arise just like we are. And they're working through the best way to think about these issues the same way that we are, except. They're so busy with things, I don't think they have the time to really deal with it.
2: Yeah, I think what you've described is uh, it gets back to the, the heart of Mormonism. Paraphrasing Joseph Smith, said something around the likes of, it's it still so liberating to, to not be bound to any one belief where I can believe truth as it comes to me.
1: Yeah, he was responding to an old gentleman who had been hushed and, and criticized, and he wanted to leave his beliefs untrammeled. I think what he recognized is that, look, when we're working through these kind of things, I think we must recognize that there will always be a lot we don't know. There will always be people who are brighter than we are who disagree with us. There will always be matters that we haven't fully explained. And at the end of the day, there are people who are going to get to heaven far before we do, no matter how intelligent. And exaltation and salvation can't be dependent on being good in theology. If that were the truth, very few people would be eligible to go to heaven. But more importantly, there are lots and lots of really wonderful people who couldn't formulate a theology if their lives depended on it. And I believe they're going to uh, be able to pass through the gates knowing God personally a lot earlier than anybody who was arrogant enough to think that because they knew theology, they had a leg up on everyone. So just, just an observation. Well said.
0: True. All right. All right. This concludes kind of the part of the book where we're doing overviews of, or just kind of orienting ourselves. You know, we've gone over classical theism, we've gone over process theism, and different various Mormon thoughts. And next time we're going to actually get into the analytical part, starting with God's power. Look forward to talking with you then about that, and have a nice night.
1: Thank you, my sons. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash thought.